Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 4 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I hope you are well. I hope you are safe with the coronavirus obviously impacting all of us, not only in the world of sports, but across the globe. And so today we decided, perhaps fittingly, to talk about immunity with some experts like Dr. David Pine, who's going to unpack for us both the innate and the adaptive immune systems, how things like exercise impact that, and of course, uh, testing more on the athletic side and, and what that can really reveal for us. We're also going to talk recovery. Um, Christy Ashwanden's phenomenal book, Good to Go, the discussion around the use of big data for monitoring, you know, what implications, what are the implications for that at the moment? What type of data are we really able to uh, gather to really put our finger on an athlete's ability to recover? And, you know, in this uh, environment today, just our own ability in life to be able to recover and maintain our immunity. And of course, that'll facilitate a discussion on periodized recovery with uh, with Christy. From there, we're going to shift gears with uh, Jen Saigo, the performance nutritionist for the Toronto Raptors, is going to talk all about low energy availability. And of course, the implications on athlete health, human health, how that can impact not only the immune system, but hormonal systems, multiple systems of the body. And then from there, Mr. Brian St-Pierre, the performance director from Precision Nutrition, is going to give us uh, his insights on vitamin D. Of course, application of vitamin D from food sources, whether that's enough, and some considerations around testing. And finally, you know, with the pandemic going around, with everyone having to hear news and, and stay up to date and almost be inundated with updates on the coronavirus, that's obviously a major stressor. Um, and the gut and the brain are intimately connected. And who better to talk about that than expert Dr. Miguel Mateus, PhD, discussing that gut-brain connection with some wonderful uh, metaphors to really bring home the point of, of just um, how impactful our mindset can be in all these areas of our health. So hope you enjoy today's episode. As usual, you can check out all the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at performancenutritionpodcast.com. We'll put the links to the original episodes there as well. And of course, this episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Dr. Ricky Singh, performance therapist for Athletics Canada, says, Peak is the ultimate evidence-based guide to improving your health, performance, and well-being. Reading Peak is the perfect route to enhancing the success of coaches, therapists, and athletes alike. Appreciate that, uh, Dr. Singh. If you guys want to check out more of the expert blurbs and feedback on the book, you can head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And of course, if you want to share your feedback, please do on social media. Use the hashtag GoPeak. Terrific. Season four, episode six, we're going to rewind the tapes, talk immunity, recovery, and energy availability. Enjoy. You know, if we kick things off here and maybe we can get listeners on the same page by doing a quick immunology 101. So perhaps you could define a few things, you know, innate versus adaptive immunity, systemic versus local, etc. Sure. And it's really about athlete health, I guess, is the topic of our discussion today, Mark. For sure. So health is, I guess, for the global level, uh, that's, you know, all our individual responsibility. Um, so and that's a big part of our education and I'm sure we'll draw on some of that in the in the coming minutes uh so that's sort of self-management and upskilling and educating athletes so they take that responsibility which is the key at the end uh and then also working with a range of sports science professionals and particularly the primary care physician you know your general practitioner or your sports medicine practitioner who does have that primary responsibility uh and the expertise and the authority to look after the health and well-being of athletes and then there's people like me who come in with interest as an exercise immunologist uh, who works you know, with the doctor, the athlete, and other providers like the uh, the sports nutritionists 
and dietitians. So it's all about health, and obviously the body's immune system uh, is there to provide what we call the host defence uh, against illness and infection, but also in terms of tissue healing and inflammation, which is a big part of sport. So every athlete knows, you know, that injury uh, is really a key consideration. So the body's immune Definitely. system has evolved to uh, ward off infection and deal with tissue repair, um, certainly in the, the sports setting. And, I mean, in simple terms, the immune system is comprised of three elements. So one is like what we call the physical barriers, which is the skin. Obviously, that protects all the internal uh, organs and, and the body. Uh, then there's things like the mucus that lines uh, the mouth, nose, nostril, uh, respiratory system, uh, even down to the gastrointestinal system, which contains all sorts of um, uh, cells and antibodies, so those sort of physical barriers and the mucus. And then we come down to the immune cells, which are the white blood cells that circulate in the blood and in the tissues. Uh, they actually fight infection. And then we have the antibodies or the proteins um, produced by the cells um, that provide the so-called specific immunity. So from top down, Mark, yeah, I think of it in that way. So there's the physical barriers, there's, I guess, the immune cells, the white blood cells, and then the antibodies. So those three elements combine. You mentioned about the innate versus the acquired immunity. Yep. So if we look at some of those immune cells, uh, so some of those have this, what we call um, innate immunity. So they're ones that do have this antibacterial, antiviral activity. Uh, and one of the most common white blood cells is the neutrophil. So that undertakes phagocytosis. So, you know, some technical terms there. But we also have um, the lymphocytes, which then form the antibodies. So we've got a range of these so-called white blood cells. So some of those have this innate uh, function to attack viruses and bacteria, but the adaptive elements, so some of these antibodies, they'll target specific antigens. So if you pick up some sort of uh, foreign bug um, that comes into the system, then the body will produce these cells and antibodies that target specifically. So it's often a bit of a battle that goes on between these so-called pathogenic agents, so viruses and bacteria, and then the body's immune system producing these um, antibodies. So normally that's in balance, but occasionally gets out of balance, and that could be dealt with, obviously, by you know, pharmaceutical intervention or maybe nutritional intervention are probably the two key things uh, there. The second question there, Mark, was the systemic versus local. Yep. So the system, I guess, is really, you can think about that in simple terms, is the blood that circulates the body. Um, so obviously... At rest, you know, we're pumping around a few litres per minute and during exercise, so that can go up tenfold. So the immune system uh, can ramp up pretty quickly in terms of the sort of systemic effects. But local, the easy way to think about that is really out in the periphery. So that where you might have, you know, a localised infection, um, so it might be fungus of the feet, so tinea, or it could be a muscle strain in terms of athletes. Uh, and so then the body's got to... Uh, pump the blood, get the white blood cells and the antibodies out to those sort of more um, peripheral areas, so the so-called local immunity. And then the final element is, you know, what regulates all this, and this is this term cytokine, which are these protein messenger molecules. Um, so the immune system normally lies fairly quiet doing its thing, and then obviously when infection comes or there's a muscle strain or a muscle tear or some sort of bruise or contusion, then it, it's upregulated. And part of that upregulation is the cytokine messenger molecules. But once that's uh, done its job, then the immune system needs to be downregulated, and then you get the cytokines also come in. So they like the switch, if you like, to keep the immune system under control. Perfect. And you, know, you mentioned the immune system and obviously inflammation, one of its major effectors, and of course, both regulated by things like exercise and nutrition. So maybe we can start here with exercise first. Could you perhaps outline for folks how you know acute bouts of moderate exercise, how they impact immunity compared to more prolonged and intense bouts of exercise with more you know elite type athletes? Sure, and this has been studied quite extensively. You know, certainly in the last uh, probably two to three decades, you know, there's the interest um, and the ability to study these things has increased with technology and you know medical. Uh, breakthroughs and then translating into sports medicine and sports science that's been part of my work and many others uh, around the world. So, 
you know, the question is, you know, how does the different forms of exercise impact? And as you said, the moderate exercise, which is the things that we promote, and, you know, in this day and age, it's all about being active and healthy. For sure, getting more And it's been work done, yeah, so something for all of us, whether an elite athlete or just a recreational, or someone just going around our everyday lives. So being active is important, and that sort of low-level moderate exercise is beneficial in all sorts of ways for health, uh, but one of the ways is it's been shown to actually enhance immune function. So those white blood cells and those protein responses can actually be increased or enhanced. So if you undertake exercise, and it's pretty moderate as the standard sort of recommendations, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, three or four times a week at a, at a moderate intensity. So this is just your, your active walking or playing low-level sports or going to the gym and doing a workout. Yep. Um, so moderate exercise is beneficial. But at the other end of the spectrum, really intense exercise that perhaps more is in the line of sports and elite athletes and a lot of recreational enthusiasts too who really push pretty hard. So very intense exercise or very prolonged exercise, eventually that may be a little bit immunosuppressive. So you might get this little down regulation. So talk about this post-exercise recovery period. So if you do moderate exercise, the immune system is actually upregulated. Uh, for a few hours and conversely if you go out and really do a big session or have a really intense competition sport or a match then once you're really fatigued and exhausted the immune system actually goes down for a little while so they talk about this window of recovery and that becomes then the target zone for the recovery interventions and also post-training nutrition that's terrific dude and how do things for the athlete in terms of training you know if you know, training volume, frequency, intensity, even things like load sequencing. If an athlete is potentially at a at higher risk or, or, or feeling rundown, what are some things that they could do on those fronts to help mitigate that potential risk? Yeah, that's no, a good question. So I guess it's the extension of this sort of understanding that, you know, potentially moderate exercise is good. Um, but there are some risks. And I guess those risks for elite athletes uh, can be moderated you know, if they're prepared uh, and they're adapted and tolerate exercise. So it's obviously, and again, every athlete and coach would know that if you overdo it too soon, then that'll cause problems either by injury, you know, a strain, fatigue, or potentially this sort of increased risk of illness. Yep. But over a period of weeks to months as fitness increases, then the body's ability to handle all this sort of up and down motion of the immune system improves as well. So it's no surprise, it's just about doing, you know, a balanced, uh, progressive uh, training and, you know, this whole discussion around periodization in terms of the planning out week in, week out, you know, is important so you don't overdo it. And obviously through trial and error and people's expertise, you know, they quickly know how to manage that. Well, most people, you know, not everyone, some people, you know, do do the wrong thing. So I guess in terms of that level, Mark, so about your planning of preparing for competitions, or a season, um, so you need to factor that in. So this sort of balanced training or periodised training. And you mentioned about, I guess, individual sessions and just prescription of exercise, so intensity and duration. Um, so that's important you know, when you're planning the training weeks but down to individual sessions. And so the conventional wisdom there is, you know, you don't want too many high-intensity sessions in a row. So often, you know, it might be two or three or four, you know, sessions where, you know, it's bit higher in, in load, so intensity and volume, but you're intermixing that with, you know, lighter sessions or maybe some skill sessions or some shooting round sessions in basketball. So yep. you're thinking about the effect of each session and then telling that up. And so then you're looking at, you know, week by week um, how the load uh, increases and then how you actually uh, vary that load as a coach and, and an athlete. Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, obviously, nutrition, sleep, um, you know, managing stress, whether from, you know, mental, emotional, even as, as well as training stress. So, so key in all these areas and, you know, for sports scientists like yourself or practitioners, you know, how do you measure immune system function in a meaningful way in athletes? Yeah, it's a question I get asked a lot and I guess my colleagues as well. So I think everyone understands, okay, health is important because we do want to stay healthy. We don't want to be distracted or inconvenienced by illness or injury or fatigue or poor performance. So everyone's invested in trying to find you know, better ways to manage themselves. So as you said, Mark, I mean, it is a combination of factors, and that's where it's really, I guess, 
coming down to looking at the individual circumstances. You know, when a team environment, everyone's basically on the same preparation or competition schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, but even within that environment, you know, athletes learn, and I guess that's the experience of athletes as they mature. You know, they know how to manage themselves and manage the load. So it is a little bit of a checklist, as you said. So around that lifestyle management. So one is, I guess, their training and their exercise loads have been discussing. And then the other sort of main checklist, I guess, for people to run through, and this is the sort of conversation of I have a coach come to me or an athlete saying, look, having a few issues, I'm feeling a bit flat or, you know, I keep getting, you know, colds and flus and so on. And then I just go through, in my mind, a little mental checklist around their lifestyle. So as you said, so it's their exercise and training loads, their recovery, both in terms of, you know, exercise modalities, and uh, things that they can do at home and sleep. And as you said, nutrition is a big one, which I'm sure we're going to come to in a minute. And managing stress levels, because no doubt that's a big driver. Anxiety, and again, you know, we can all relate to that in our everyday life, you know, with our lifestyle stress, job stress, home stress, relationship stress. So that's a big one. And so with athletes, you say, okay, how's your training? Okay, have you got anything else going on at home, at school or in your work? Uh, ask questions about their sleep. So, and everyone would sort of nod, okay, yeah, but you just need to go through those and explore a little bit and just see if there's anything that's a bit out of balance. That's terrific. And, you know, in terms of certain biomarkers as well, um, David, things like secretory IGA, how is that potentially useful in, in being able to evaluate, you know, a stress load on an athlete or potentially how at risk they are for infection? Well, not very, actually. Uh, so that's the question. People come in, so look, let's just review your... Um, your lifestyle arrangements, and then as you said, okay, and what about what other tests? Can I get a blood test? Can I do some other test with the doc or lab tests? And you mentioned about saliva, and again, I've done a lot of work over the years, you know, as have other groups around the world, on saliva because saliva contains some of these um, proteins, the salivary IgA or immunoglobulin A. So it's a bit of a contentious point, actually, and there was a recent commentary just published earlier this year which was really i guess critical of this sort of overemphasis on biomarkers um so it's a bit of an academic debate um so i would say and having a foot in both camps that you probably want to put the lifestyle factors first and then you would work with your healthcare practitioner so your sports dietitian or your gp or your your sports doc um and saying okay i'm having some issues and they would go through this sort of okay you know, what's your history? You know, what are you doing? Tell us about how you're training and recovering. And then there, in probably a minority of cases, they might then organise, okay, we might get some blood work up or we might do some other fancy test around a saliva test or viral tests. So the, the yields, as we scientists and medical people would say, you know, what's the yield or the utility or the usefulness of the test? For sure. So they only have a limited value. And so I always defer back to let's review the big picture which is certainly engages the individual, so I think they can certainly relate to that. If it's some fancy blood test, you know, they might know, oh, can I get a blood test? But, um, you know, often they don't have as much value as looking at their other lifestyle factors. You know, in some sports, it's more that... Uh culture to, to kind of yeah. get grin and bear it and get through it. So it, it, it is... Uh, interesting to see the different dynamics in different sports. Absolutely. And I think so much of this is cultural too. And there are rituals that are just part of sport. You know, one of the ones that I talk about in the book is stretching. You know, when I was in, in high school, I was captain of the track team and we had every day before practice, we had this whole ritual. It was probably like 15 minutes of stretching that we did. And it was like, you did this stretch and then you did that stretch. And it wasn't just, you know, at the time we were being told this was going to make us less sore and you had to do what it was supposed to be part of our warm up and and all of this, and now I know, you know, there's not good evidence that it helps with soreness or even reduces injury, which was a surprise to me. Um, but, you know, these things become so ritualized and they become so much a part of, like, what we do and what we think is expected. And I can see how there's some benefit to that in some instances. So, for instance, you know, um, this high school situation, it was sort of a team bonding experience. We're all together doing the same thing. It was a time when we could sort of chat and, and socialize. And, you know, that has other benefits. Um, the, the stretching itself probably wasn't doing us any good. Um, but it, it was something that we could do together. And it was a way of sort of coming together as a team before we, we got out there on the track. 
And it is amazing, isn't it? The um, yeah, some of that dedicated time for human interaction, decompressing, yeah. sharing stories, whether it's you know the hot or cold tub or stretching. Um, how much that's impacting? If you talk about confounding factors when people are doing mm-hmm. studies, that's definitely probably one of them. Um, and of course, you touched on this idea of, of when we're doing certain strategies. And um, mm-hmm. you know, this past summer, I had the pleasure of. Uh, listening to Dr. Shona Howelson uh, from the Australian Institute of Sport present at the uh, Human Performance Conference at University of Notre Dame. Of course, she shared yeah. some of her insights on periodized yeah. recovery, uh, which you do a great job of covering in the book. Could you just define for folks periodized recovery and share some of the insights that you uh, learned from Dr. Howelson? Yeah, for sure. She's great. In fact, she appears repeatedly. She's kind of one of the stars of my book, I'd say. Yeah, she's terrific. Uh, really a uh, leading, world-leading expert on recovery, which is why I interviewed her numerous, multiple times, and she appears in the book. Um, but so one of these ideas here that she's really done a lot on is this idea of period, periodized recovery in the same way that we do period periodized training. So just as, you know, during the early season um, of sport, you're really trying to put a base down and, and um, you know, if you're in an endurance sport like like me, you're getting your base miles and things like that. Um, so here, the idea is that with recovery, you want that recovery, those recovery things that you're doing to address sort of the state of training that you're in. So in the early season, um, outside of the competition season, what you're really trying to do is force adaptations. And so in those instances, you don't really want to do anything that's going to do anything to harm or slow adaptations, which means you really don't want to be doing icing or doing, you know, you don't want to be taking anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen indiscriminately because these are things that interfere with inflammation and that interferes with your adaptation and your adaptive process. It interferes with the healing of this micro damage that happens in your muscles when you exercise hard. On the other hand, in the middle of competition and particularly in the middle of, you know, if you are in a sport like swimming or track and field or even something like CrossFit where you're doing multiple events in very short order, um, it may be that, you know, your your short-term goal there is just to feel better in the short term and you don't really care about adaptations because you're just going to perform again. You don't care about, you know, how you're doing two weeks from now. You want to be feeling good here good here now and that's an instance where icing might still be appropriate because although uh, you know it may reduce some of your adaptations later on it might make you feel a little bit better in the meantime icing is a really good sort of numbing agent and so it can reduce pain and um, in an instance where you have to go again in, in you know a few minutes or an hour or two it can still be an appropriate response and so um, she's really advocating for this a periodized approach where you're in the same way that you do with training, sort of thinking about, okay, what is my objective for this training session? What am I trying to get out of it? The same sort of goes for recovery. You know, am I trying to make myself feel better to perform tomorrow or am I making myself feel better to perform in an hour? Am I in a stage in my training where I don't really care about performance in the next few days or even few weeks, but I'm really looking for the long-term adaptations? And, you know, in those cases, you, you sort of want to adapt your recovery strategies appropriately. 100%. And it yeah, definitely gets back to that conversation around adaptation versus optimization and those periods when we're yeah. trying to adapt, as you mentioned, allowing that inflammatory process to, to do its job, to trigger those adaptations. Um, you see that similarly on the nutrition front as well when people decide to start taking supplementing with, with more polyphenols or more agents that are actually going to blunt that, that beneficial response. And of course, different when you're, when you're really optimizing and peaking for competition or trying to perform again and again. Obviously, you see that in the NBA with the ice around the knees after games, trying yeah, to play all those yeah, games right. in one week. So it's, uh, yeah. uh, it's a fascinating uh, discussion there. And if, if we shift gears a little bit and talk training data, because obviously you dive into the, mm-hmm. the analytics and metrics on this side of things, and it's been a massive surge, obviously, in the last decade or more uh, in sport around big data. It's, yeah. defi- it's definitely led to some you know, new and groundbreaking insights, but just like this recovery story, there's a lot of nuance amongst all those numbers. So can you talk a bit about you know, th- that obsession with training data that, that for some people can be a little bit counterproductive? Yeah, absolutely. I have a whole chapter in the book about data and and sort of the search for the magic metric that will tell everything about recovery. And, you know, I think in the end, one of the things we've learned, and look, I'm a data geek, I'm a data journalist, you know, numbers are my 
my jam, right? Like nice. <laughs> I'm very interested in, in data. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting to note that there are limits to it. And you really have to ask, you know, when you're amassing data, you really have to ask, what am I trying to learn here? What is the question that I, this data is going to answer for me? And how, how will what I'm doing change? You know, we have so many instances now where we're just sort of mindlessly collecting data without thinking hard ahead of time what we're intending to do with it or how it will change um, the way that we're training or that we're recovering or what, what we're doing to support um, our athletics. And so you, you end up with all these numbers that don't really mean anything or aren't telling you anything new. And uh, I describe some situations in the book where this can even become counterproductive, where you know, the numbers are telling you things that may be counter to how you're feeling. So there, in fact, there's a, an anecdote in the book about a, a person who goes into the sleep lab insisting that you know she's not sleeping enough and she's having troubled sleep because this sleep tracker that she's wearing has been telling her so. And she goes in and it turns out she's sleeping fine, but is sort of refusing to to trust how she's feeling and, and these sort of qualitative uh, measures because we've just we've come to believe that the number on the watch is sort of the, the ultimate answer. And I think what we're coming to understand is that um, that's not usually the case. And in fact, with when it comes to recovery, uh, the very best measures that we have are actually qualitative. So they're things like, how are you feeling? And they're things like, this is was really a surprise to me, but mood is actually one of the best predictors of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're really on the edge and you're overtrained or on the verge of being overtrained, or even in a period where you're training really heavily sort of by design and you know you're going to be a little bit overreaching, um, you tend to be testy, moody, maybe even a little bit depressed. And, and that's a sign. That's your body telling you like, eh, I'm tired. Like, you know, and it's good to learn to listen to that. To get all the listeners on the same page, can you maybe define a few terms to kick things off here? So relative energy deficiency in sport, uh, and maybe share with folks some of the mm. main systems that are affected there. Sure. So um, this thing, relative energy deficiency in sport, the acronym for it is REDS. Some people call it RED-S, but I'll call it REDS today. Um, it, it was a term that was first coined in 2014 through an IOC position stand So basically, the International Olympic Committee had a group of leading researchers um, get together in a room, more or less, and said, don't come out till you figure it out what this cluster of things that we're seeing presenting in athletes, and I say athletes, not just females, but males as well, uh, give it a name. So prior to this, the term that many listeners may have been familiar with and, and that is still used is the female athlete triad, Um, and that term has been around for quite some time. I believe the first position stand on it was, I think, 1993. Um, So since then, uh, we've learned, though, that the female athlete triad, which was originally perceived to be um, a three-component, sort of a triangle, sort of stretched into eventually a triangular prism, meaning a spectrum, involved energy availability or basically calorie intake relative to expenditure, Hormonal effects, um, particularly low estrogen or losing the menstrual period, also known as amenorrhea. And then the third tier of the female athlete triad was bone loss or, in the most extreme case, osteoporosis. Uh, Maybe in an elite athlete, the more concerning would be something like a stress fracture. So that was the original concept was that by under eating relative to energy expended, an athlete, female athlete, could put themselves at risk of menstrual dysfunction and then bone loss. We now understand that the body, as in all systems, is far more complex than that. It isn't just that one, two, or three things interrelate and nothing else is affected. So we now appreciate that the body, um, when we are in what we call a low energy availability state, when we're not getting enough calories, that we have other systems that are affected. Things like our endocrine system, for example. So uh, we might see things like thyroid disruptions or changes. We might see blood glucose or blood sugar levels that are lower than they would be predicted to be. We even see things like cholesterol going high. Um, That's just one element of this. From a performance perspective, we'll start to see things like um, loss of overall performance, reduced training adaptation, loss of lean mass, which is really important, obviously, for a variety of reasons for athletes, um, reduced glycogen stores. And we can see things like mood disruptions as well. 
low mood and depression um, and athletes just struggling mentally to have the get up and go to train or to compete. So it's really multifaceted. And um, that 2014 position stand that first named this thing called Reds really emphasized that it doesn't just happen in women, but it can happen in men too. Now in 2018, they've published an update with the further research in this area. So it's, it's not just a growing field. I would say in some ways it's almost an exploding field. Yeah, it's amazing how it touches on you know virtually every system in the body. And you, you mentioned there, obviously, uh, male athletes sort of being underappreciated, but obviously this impacts them as well. And you know, if, if we think about low energy availability, is there certain sports or athletes that are potentially more, more prone to this than others? Well, certainly, and and I, you know the original research in these areas stemmed from um, some of the what you might consider the usual suspects when it comes to uh, weight monitoring or emphasizing a low body weight or leanness. So we would see it in things like endurance sports, your long distance runners. Uh, you'd see it in your aesthetic sports like your gymnasts and your figure skaters. But now, when we look at prevalence data, we see that you can see indicators of. Reds or this precursor low energy availability uh, in in there really isn't a sport that that has been demonstrated to have no indicators of this in uh, high performance athletes. So, for example, in our study, we found indicators of low energy availability in sprinters, which is traditionally a group you think, oh, these are not a a group that that fusses about you know losing weight or or being too skinny, so to speak. Um, and in fact, you know, we've had some some leading medical and, and research uh, experts across the world who've said, no, 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 this this is just why are you looking at this in this population? It's not an issue. Um, but we did find, in fact, that sprinters do show signs of low energy availability, and that can be a predisposing factor to falling all the way into reds, which is basically a syndrome where where you're now severely having uh, effects on performance. So it's, it's, it's quite widespread. Um, we are still learning about where it exists in male athletes and how we define it. Um, but we do know that we will see indicators in them as well, particularly with things like loss of testosterone, lower than normal testosterone levels and loss of performance. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, so much information on endurance sports, et cetera. And as you mentioned, the you know, speed and power sports obviously lacking. And of course, you know, your terrific research, um, which maybe we can dovetail into now. Um, you know, what, what was the aim of the study? And can you walk people through the, the setup of the study over this, uh, you know, five-month indoor uh, season in elite female sprinters? Sure. So I work with Athletics Canada. So I am fortunate to be able to work with some of the fastest women in, in Canada and in the world. Um, and in fact, to be completely honest, when we started our study, we included the males too. I was, I was actually very, very interested to get results on the men. And, and the reason why I was is because I absolutely do see the signs and symptoms of REDS in male athletes that I work with across all sports. Um, I get them in my private practice. I see them in team sports. I see them in individual sports. And um, if I can step aside for one second, there's evidence out there that um, essentially the more that we emphasize some of the things that dietitians like myself would try to encourage athletes and active individuals to do, namely eating a real high quality whole foods diet, the more that you push that sort of dietary pattern, believe it or not, you may drive people more into this state. The reason being that as you eat more whole foods and as you reduce the processing of the foods that you eat, they're more filling. Yeah, you just they're get more full, full right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So if you have an athlete who has needs of 3,500 or 4,000 calories a day and they feel just stuffed at 3,200 calories a day, well, low energy availability is defined as the number of calories left for daily phys basic physiological functioning after accounting for what you've done in exercise or training. So putting it another way, if you say, uh, I, I burned 1,500 calories training today and I ate 2,100 calories, well, you've only got 600 calories left for all your physiological functioning. So we know now that as people eat these really whole foods-based diets, it's sometimes harder for them to meet their energy requirements. I had seen this in athletes routinely across, like I said, a huge spectrum. So I, we wanted to see in, in, in both male and female sprinters, does, do we see indicators? Do we see things like changes in blood values, in their resting metabolic rate, their metabolism um, which might drop because of the loss of muscle mass or because the body's basically conserving energy. Do we see indicators of low bone density? So uh, we, we followed our track team, several members of our track team, um, from the start of their season at 
the end of the Rio Olympics, starting the 2017 um, cycle through till the end of their indoor season in about April. Um, and we looked at these markers as they changed from the start of the season to the end of the season. And um, to my surprise, we did find indicators of energy availability concerns, even at the start of the season in four out of the 14 athletes that we ultimately um, published on. We ended up only publishing on the females because uh, we didn't have enough males to be able to publish. So basically some athletes were coming into their season already in a state of deficit and showing signs of stress. Um, and then perhaps as no surprise, as the season progressed, those numbers seemed to so basically worsen um, in the sense that we ended up with more athletes with indicators. Basically half of our athletes had ended up in the yeah, it's amazing how it's, um, you know, back to one of your points there, it's, it's tough for people to parse out this difference between, you know, the general population just trying to eat a whole foods diet and be healthy versus athletes who are really pushing themselves hard and, and have this huge, massive uh, energy intake that they need to consume and how difficult it can be to get to that number. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, oh. starting out the year, four to 13 female sprinters, that's really, you know, I think people would assume coming off of an off season um, that most athletes are sort of ready to go. Is Are there some potential reasons that you guys identified as contributing to, to kicking the season off with that low energy availability? Uh, two of those four athletes, um, because I know them, who they were individually, two of the four of them had just come off their Rio Olympic season. So if you think of it this way, that basically you go into this major event, this, this key, key life event, and you're watching your intake and you're training your brains out and you're traveling. So maybe your nutrition isn't as on point as it would be. And you're basically pushing your body as hard as you can. Is that these athletes, even though those Olympics happened in August, that when we were testing them in November, their body still essentially had not recovered. So it really speaks to the idea that we have to respect the fact that the body does require downtime um, and that you can't reasonably expect yourself to run that, say, hardest marathon and train the most hours you ever have and then turn around and do it again. So um, there, there's a real element here to appreciating that rest and recovery. The, the more you ask of yourself, the more that you'll need to give yourself a bit of a break. Um, what was neat was one of those four athletes who came in in a low energy availability state at the start of the season came out looking better at the end of the season. And she fully admitted it. She got very sick after the Olympics. And she said, yeah, I pushed myself right to my very, very limits. Um, but then what she did for the whole season, the indoor season, was she took really, really good care of herself, ate well, um, made sure that she was fueling for her workouts, not restricting. And she came out looking better at the end of five months of training than she was when she came in. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. And, you know, for folks listening in, can you maybe... Um, identify some of those sort of primary and secondary indicators of low energy availability that you'd see in, in the female athletes? Sure, yeah, and female athletes, well, we do have one really big one that we can use. Um, and again, this, this you may be listening, you may not be someone who's going to work with athletes that are uh, in an Olympic or a professional sport environment, but I see this in my private practice with athletes, female athletes of all ages and ranges, and that is looking at menstrual function. So in that sense, it could be as simple as um, multiple missed or skipped periods, usually at least three months. Um, definitely, if we see six months of periods being missed, we call that amenorrhea. Um, that's, a, that's a great indicator. Now, for the record, amenorrhea can happen for other reasons, too. So you always want to for exclude sure. um, any other cause that may not be related to energy availability. Um, but at the same time, you, you can usually get a pretty good idea if, if a female athlete has a normal period, they go on a diet, slash their calories in half and their period stops. I can, I can, you know, <laughs> you could probably make a good guess as to why that happened. Definitely. Uh, and it's not for some other reason. Uh, beyond that, then we start looking at other uh, indicators, things like low bone density or indicators of bone loss. So what I really watch out for is stress fractures. Uh, if I see a female athlete or a male athlete with a stress fracture, I'm always going to ask the question about energy availability right off the bat. Um, not that every stress fracture is caused by that. It could be biomechanical. It could be a load issue. There could have been mistakes made in training. You could change your footwear. Um, there's lots of causes. But I really, that's something that's a big, big key for me is to start asking hard questions about energy availability. Um, sends up that red flag, right? Yeah, and you know, what's really interesting is if you look at some of the research out there now on energy availability concerns, 
it isn't just measuring how many calories the person's eating and how much they're burning. There's indications that even within the same day, what we call within-day energy balance or within-day energy availability can play a role in this. So as an example, if you take an athlete who is maybe borderline under eating, but what they're really doing is they're, they're cramming all their calories at the beginning and the end of the day, and all their training happens in the middle without very much calorie consumption at all, uh, we can see it's almost like the bar for energy availability concern starts to get raised. Uh, all of a sudden, they'll start to show signs and symptoms, hormonal changes, even when they're, you know, potentially pretty close to meeting their energy needs. And obviously, the sun is the best place to get vitamin D. What about vitamin D in foods? What's the difference between plant foods and animal foods when it comes to vitamin D? Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting is like there aren't a lot of food sources of vitamin D, right? There's, uh, you know, fish, particularly like uh, fish organs. That's where like uh, cod liver oil is famous for its vitamin D. Uh, eggs contain some. Uh, mushroom contains some. That's pretty much <laughs> about it. Yeah. I mean, some other some other shellfish maybe and a little bit of seafood, but it's not a whole lot. And so what you do often get from maybe like uh, mushrooms is usually like vitamin D2, though there are some interesting things now where they're like expose them to, um, oh, I can't think of the term off the top of my head, some type of light. I'm, I'm losing, drawing a blank. But they expose them to a certain amount of light and it'll actually produce some D3 as well in the mushrooms, which is really interesting. Awesome. But for the most part, um, you're going to get some vitamin D3 from food sources, but it's relatively minimal. Of course, they also add vitamin D to dairy, uh, to a lot of dairy options, and that was done to help prevent rickets and things that were common in the developing world in the and even in, in industrialized countries in like the early 1900s, uh, mid-1900s in that time period. So you, that's where you can get it. It's in some fortified foods as well, but it's not naturally occurring in a lot of foods. Yeah, it becomes a bit of a misnomer, doesn't it? That idea of vitamin D rich foods. It's sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, of, of anything that has a little bit, but it's still, it's still a, a pretty sparse, as you, as you mentioned there. And of course, you know, getting back to what our grandparents would have done with this, you know, with using cod liver oil, I always, um, fascinated by things that are sort of traditional. And then a couple generations later, we have all the science to show us that, hey, this cod liver oil has got the vitamin A and vitamin D and some of these factors that are going to really help us out. So, uh, do you see more, more folks using that now again in there? as part of their uh, nutrition program? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I would still say people, between the two, people definitely do fish oil much more so than, than cod liver oil. Um, but I just definitely see more people doing cod liver oil. It's just one of those things I think you have to be a little bit more mindful of because you can't treat it like fish oil. It's not like a one-for-one -one replacement. If you try to take, take it and get as many omega-3s as you get from fish oil, you run risk of of potentially, you know, having uh, excessive levels of vitamin A and sometimes even vitamin D. So, but I think in, in small amounts, a teaspoon, one to two teaspoons a day, um, there can be a ton of value because you're getting more than just the omega threes you're getting from from fish oil, right? You're actually getting a, a vitamin D rich uh, food for the most part, or, or supplement, whatever you want to classify it as, along with vitamin A, which is important. Um, I think what's oftentimes lost in some of the massive vitamin D supplementation is that a lot of the fat-soluble vitamins work kind of in concert. So if you're taking a ton of vitamin D of your own accord, if you're doing it under medical supervision to treat a deficiency, that's one thing. But if you're taking high levels of vitamin D, you know, 5,000 IUs a day, 10,000 IUs a day, like you see some folks taking, and you're not ensuring that you're getting adequate amounts of vitamin A or even vitamin K2, which is a particular type of vitamin K, there is some evidence that suggests you could be Yes, getting benefit from, from the vitamin D, but also causing some, having some unintended consequences um, by high dosing the D and not getting in enough A and K. Yeah, it's definitely one of those ones. That's a great point where, you know, the lower your vitamin A status, you're definitely at risk for more toxic effects from the vitamin D. So you've got to watch that. Uh, right. And that's definitely something that a few years ago, you know, if we stay on the kind of the supplement um, route here is that, you know, people seem to be supplementing with high doses of vitamin D, 10,000 IU a day or more for months and months on end. And um, of course, you know, you touched on some of the pitfalls. There any other things that people should be concerned about with, with toxicity or, or side effects if they were to take big doses for long periods of time? 
Yeah, I mean, one of those. Uh, that's just this is just kind of my general philosophy when it comes to supplements in general. Is it's it, you should also always have the principle of do no harm, right? And so <laughs> sure. yes, and I think well, something sometimes that's easily forgotten in Absolutely. the quest for for optimization, yeah. right? And, and sometimes the research just doesn't show us the full picture yet, especially when something is relatively new on the scene, like vitamin D was a handful of years ago or so. Um, people just kind of took the went a little too far in terms of on the pendulum, right? People weren't having any vitamin D, taking any vitamin D for long periods of time other than what might have been in their multivitamin. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe about 10 years ago, we became more aware of the importance of vitamin D. People started supplementing like crazy, right? Taking 5,000, 10,000 IUs when they didn't every day, when they, they didn't even know what their baseline blood levels were to begin with. And we just didn't have that much data on the whole, right? We we had a flashlight on a small piece of the puzzle, and we didn't see the full puzzle yet. Um, so I think that's one of the things – I'm always cautious when it comes to stuff like that because we don't know what we don't know. And there's only so many questions that have been asked and explored, and so I tend to just have a, a more cautious approach in general um, – and because you always we always discover things in hindsight, and it's like, oh, well, I wish we had realized that when your vitamin A status is low, right, you increase risk of toxicity from vitamin D. Even if we're taking the same amount, you and I, if our vitamin A statuses are very different, that can affect how those that that supplement supplemental vitamin D affects us. And so I think it's important to always keep that in mind, and and to kind of always have the do no harm principle, because when you look at some of the other research on vitamin D, and this is a lot of it is. Um, observational. It's not necessarily known cause and effect, but there's some pretty consistent observational evidence that once blood levels get above maybe like 40 to 50 nanograms per ml, um, there is consistent increases, small increases, but increases in risk of mortality, which I find really interesting. And it's, I mean, we're again, we're talking associations. This doesn't prove anything. Um, But you look at the vast majority of the vitamin D evidence, and it shows that most benefit comes from helping people not be sufficient, insufficient or deficient. Once you're kind of above that threshold, you're you're maximizing most of the benefits and minimizing risk. Once and there are times and places to have much higher levels in certain circumstances, but I think oftentimes people kind of misapply that. Well, if someone who has cancer should have you know, really high levels of vitamin D to help with their treatment, then I'm going to have really high levels all the time because I think it might help me prevent cancer. We don't know that's the case, right? Just because it's important or helpful during a certain circumstance doesn't mean it's going to be helpful all the time. And it might have some unintended consequences that we're not aware of. So I tend to be, where can I maximize benefit, minimize possible unintended consequences, you know, so I do no harm with myself and with clients uh, who ask about it. And then if they have a medical need or there's some other interesting particular circumstances that they have where they might want to have it higher, you know, I might give them information to discuss with their medical team. But I'm I'm a big advocate of it's a long-winded say of long-winded uh, way of saying do no harm, be more cautious, and then only increase uh, as necessary. Absolutely. I mean, that idea of context is one that you mentioned there, and yeah, it gets so lost all the time. If people mm-hmm. pick a certain scenario and, and see a, a certain dose or an exercise or whatever it may be, and then apply it to a different situation, just uh, like for like when it's just not the case. And uh, you mentioned things like insufficiency, and of course, you know, the Endocrine Society committee classifies that. We'll just do some Canadian and uh, American numbers here, sort of, you know, less than 30 nanograms per mil in the U.S., and of course, less than 75 nanomoles per liter. So if people are getting tested, um, you know, that's kind of those areas to shoot for. And as you mentioned, yeah, getting up beyond that 40 is definitely one where uh, we start to see some potentially bad things going on. And ironically, the normal range even goes up on the labs here in uh, in Canada. We go up to 250 nanomoles per liter, which is far above that. So, wow. so even yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's they're slow. They're slow to change. So it's not always mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, the good well, and part of it, I think out. it's the evidence isn't necessarily clear, right? We don't quite know because like those were. That was based on observational data. Um, It's not like we've been giving people really high doses and then seeing if they die. Um, (laughs) That's not not usually how research is is done, just for ethical purposes. Um, You know, uh, unless it's like a preventive measure, like a statin, where you're trying to see if you can prevent deaths. Um, You know, so it's one of those things where there's probably not enough evidence that says, man, going higher than 40 definitely increases your risk. But there's definitely some enough data that would just make me take pause 
and consider the cost to benefit ratio for myself and for my clients. All right, and so that cost to benefit ratio changes depending, like you said, on context. So if I'm just looking to get healthier, I'm already generally healthy, I'm just looking to be fit, make sure I'm, I'm not insufficient, then there's no need for me to crank it up to 250 nanomoles per liter. Right? That's probably not going to give me any more benefit for that goal than just being in the and you're I'm trying to think of your numbers so about 75 to probably like 100 nanomoles per liter yeah um, in that 30 to 40 nanograms per ml range you know I think that's probably in that 30 to 50 nanomole, uh, nanograms per per milliliter or what does that translate to about 75 to uh, 150 or so yeah 25 in that in that ballpark um, that's what I would generally consider to be like a pretty safe place to be in. Um, oftentimes you see it's a little higher in the summer because you might still be taking some vitamin D and getting some sunshine. And it might come down a little bit in the winter when you're really just taking it supplementally uh, and th- whenever you get through your diet. But as long as you're, I think, in that range, you're probably in the do no harm maximizing the benefit uh, space for the most part. Um, but again, there can be medical times and places where it should be higher but that's not going to come from suggestions for me because i would consider that outside my scope of practice um now i might give a client information to discuss with their doctor about it if i think it might be valuable because I've, of things i've read and research i've looked at but it wouldn't be my call right and i would make sure they discuss that with their medical team If we can circle back for a moment, maybe talk about the microbiota gut-brain axis and the different routes of communication along this axis. You sort of touched on a few here, but things like the vagus nerve, the immune system, short-chain fatty acids, tryptophan. Can you walk folks through how that how that works? Sure. So uh, if you think of the brain and the gut as being connected by a cable, and uh, uh, basically there are two ways of communication from the bottom up and from the top down. And from the top down, your brain is there, you've got a cable that comes up from the uh, um, the central part of the brain, the um, hippocampus and the uh, um, uh, hypothalamus, a combination of the two. So you've got various different strains coming from those areas and going all the way down to the gut. And it's a very thin cable, it's almost like, uh, you know, in the old days of uh, dial-up, you know, if you still remember having a lab model. Unfortunately, I do. You know, so if people who are 20 or so probably don't remember that, but, you know, it's a dial-up situation where the connection is really crap and it takes forever to get a page loading on your computer. It's very simple messages. So the very simple messages that go down from the brain to the gut are very binary. They are very black and white. They are very yes and no. So basically kind of a fight or flight response. So either produce cortisol or do not produce cortisol. Um, um, neuromuscular control of peristalsis. So, you know, uh, move the muscle. So the stool actually moves towards the anus and comes out and you have a bowel motion or do not move the muscle. Um, production of serotonin and dopamine. So you've got about 95% of serotonin, which is the happy kind of... Uh, Slightly sleepy, happy, neurotransmitter, almost like a hippie kind of situation. You want to hug everybody when your serotonin is high. You know, <laughs> uh, you want to give them a cuddle and tell them they are lovely and you love them. That's the kind of like loving, um, happy neurotransmitter. And 95% of that is actually uh, produced in the gut. And the old school of thought was that it stayed in the gut. It was almost like, like Vegas, you know, serotonin happens in the gut and stays in the gut. <laughs> there you go. It's not like Vegas at all. What we're finding out is that various metabolites of serotonin um, actually travel systemically and they do various different things and they end up in the brain as well. And there's kind of like a feedback mechanism between the gut and the brain for serotonin. So, but again, going back to the very simple messages from the brain, what you're getting is gut, you need to produce serotonin or gut, do not produce serotonin. It's like a switch on and off, on and off. Secretion of mucus is the same. You know, there are various different substances that you produce in the in the gut. Um, one of them is like a complex of these things called exopolysaccharides, like complex sugars that make up like a, a layer of or a film on top of your, uh, of your gut lining to yep. protect it. And that's the mucus, basically. And, uh, and it's got a number of different things. So you see that produce more mucus or produce less mucus. Uh, very simple messages. Now, the bacteria um, uh, in your gut 
communicate with the uh, uh, with various different receptors in the gut lining and also with the nervous system. So you've got this vagus nerve, which is the very big cable that goes from the adrenals, the adrenal glands on top of the kidneys, those guys that are basically producing cortisol, um, um, adrenaline, or you call it epinephrine or norepinephrine, and you know that those three substances mainly, although they also take over in older age for females and they produce estrogen as well, and they can produce a little bit of testosterone for, for male mm -hmm. and so on, but mainly cortisol, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. And those are going to kick in when you have to escape danger. So uh, they are the primal kind of uh, um, producers of hormones that have been there from the world go when we were um, early or primal humans and we needed to either fight animals for our life to get food or fight other humans or escape the danger. And they're very, they switch into this area of the brain called the amygdala, which is where you process the very primal kind of feelings, fear, uh, danger, uh, not fluffy feelings like love and compassion and things like that, kind of like very quite, quite brutal feelings, you know, something that you require to do something very, very quick to escape danger or to fight. Uh, so you've got that cable, and we talked about this dial-up crappy thin cable that looks like nothing coming from the brain down. And from the from the bottom up, from the gut up, from the adrenals up, it's a chunky, um, thick brain that's almost like a LAN cable. So you've got broadband connection. You've got <laughs> really traveling like, quickly. It's like fiber. You know, you've got fiber optic. You know, going all the way into the amygdala very quick because it needs to. The brain needs to know immediately that you need to fight danger or you need to escape danger so and to make it a bit more complicated a bit more quirky not complicated probably a bit funky then bacteria actually talk to those nerves that are innervating the whole of the gut that are part of this an enteral nervous system which is connected to the to the vagus nerve they are mm -hmm. collecting bits and pieces of information from the uh, from the environment they are sensing is there inflammation? Is there, um, what about short-chain fatty acids like butyric acid? Is it in plenty of quantity? Is it low? What types of bacteria? All of that information, like big data, is being collected all the time and sent to the, to the amygdala, where it's being processed in various parts of the amygdala. And it does that by, it reaches there by means of molecules like the short-chain fatty acids, like the butyrate, the propionate, and the acetate. Acetate is a bit like, um, like vinegar, it actually is very similar to to vinegar, to like plain vinegar. Mm -hmm. uh, and propionic acid is um, when you get cheese that's got bubbles in the cheese, um, like Swiss cheese, you know, like the typical yep. cheese you see in cartoons or in an emoji. <laughs> Those yeah. bubbles are actually created by bacteria that are kind of uh, farting into the milk yeah. and basically just producing a bubble. Uh, that's propionic acid, basically, that you've got in there. And you've got immune molecules like secretory IgA, which is part of the mucus that is feeding back to the brain and saying, you, when you switch on the produce mucus kind of command, you don't need to produce more of secretory IgA because there is plenty. So there's this kind of like feedback mechanism. There's neuropeptides like leptin uh, that tells the, the brain that, uh, right, so you don't need to eat anymore because I'm actually satiated now. Um, ghrelin and other bits and pieces like that. Serotonin, the same thing. So the brain is producing its own serotonin, but the gut is producing its own serotonin. So, so to avoid a situation where you produce too much serotonin, which is going to make you feel rough because you need to excrete it and detoxify it, then uh, you need to talk. You know, the gut and the brain need to talk so they are not producing too much. So this is all uh, happening uh, at the same time. It's, really a lot of data going from the gut to the brain and the bacteria are key. So you've got low levels of bacteria or low levels of diversity. The communication is going to be more, uh, it's going to be poorer, it's going to be more scrambled, it's going to be more fussy. The brain is not really going to know what goes on so much. If you've got an overgrowth of bacteria, that may be too much noise. It's almost like when you run a search on Google and you get like three billion results and you think, shit, what do I do with that? I just need one paper. You know, yeah. I don't need like 30,000 papers. Just give me the one paper I need to read. So the brain is a bit like that. You know, can you tell me clearly what is going on so I can do something? Because I'm only able to do yes and no things based on the complexity that I'm analyzing.
Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform. Show your support, and it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high-quality guests. If you haven't heard, my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports, is out. And I'm pleased to announce we actually hit the Amazon bestseller list in Canada and in the U.S. in sports medicine, physical medicine and rehab, and holistic medicine categories. So you can find out more info on that and the expert insights at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And of course, you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Waterstones, or your local book sellers. Awesome. If you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And thanks again, folks, for listening, and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.